Welcome to the Illustrator Studio. I am Jesse Kowalski, Curator of Exhibitions at the Norman Rockwell Museum in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. The Illustrator Studio is a weekly interview series, a project of the museum's Rockwell Center for American Visual Studies. One of the modern fantasy masters, Charles Vest began his career drawing for Heavy Metal Magazine and National Lampoon. He soon found work at Marvel Comics and later DC Comics. Along the way, he met author Neil Gaiman, with whom Vess has collaborated many times. At the World Fantasy Awards in 1991, Vess and Gaiman won the award for Best Short Story for their work on the Sandman comic book. Vess went on to win Best Artist at the World Fantasy Awards in 1999, 2010, and 2014. And I am thrilled to speak with him today. Welcome, Charles. Thanks for having me. So in uh, looking through photographs of your studio, I see a lot of references to uh, illustration. Uh, in a quick glance, <laughs> I saw uh, Walt Kelly's Pogo comic strips and uh, Miyazaki figures, Astro Boy, and uh, Doll uh, uh, Coco the Clown from the Fleischer Brothers. Yeah. Uh, so I was just wondering uh, what kinds of things inspired you growing up? Well, I don't know about Once I got to college, it was, uh, I discovered Arthur Rackham and Howard Pyle and N.C. Wyeth and all those great illustrators. Uh, when I got, although in college I was in fine arts and they definitely uh, looked down their noses at narrative art. Uh, and if you put a figure in there, they started laughing you out of the class. So once I got out of school, um, I started working in animation. So I've always been aware of the various things that happen in animation. And uh, I, I fell in love with uh, Miyazaki after the first time I saw uh, my neighbor Totoro and uh, Totoro, and uh, saw it in Japanese, mm -hmm. uh, no subtitles, but you could figure out sort of the story, and just loved it. Uh, discovered a Swedish illustrator John Bauer, uh, and there's so many others. I, I love it's sort of like this Sherlock Holmes. Uh, looking after clues and finding some artists as mentioned some other artists and then you go looking for them. It used to be a lot harder when uh, there was no internet and uh, there weren't even art books in 1970. They just didn't have them. So uh, it was much harder then. You'd see one little picture in a magazine and go, oh, I want more. But where would you go? <laughs> so it's a little easier nowadays. Yeah, I remember in, in college, uh, illustration was treated the same uh, uh, yeah. for me. You know, they kind of skipped through it and went straight to abstract expressionism. Yeah. Oh, my school was totally into abstract expressionism. <laughs> do you see a difference between fine art and illustration? Or do you consider yourself a fine artist or an illustrator? Or do you consider uh, them the same? It depends on what I'm doing. I'm always uh, a romantic artist and always a narrative artist. I love to tell stories. I actually, my favorite thing is to do a painting that will imply a story, but is not connected to any particular one. And hopefully the viewer, each viewer will make up their own story. And that's a really fun thing to think about. And to me, that is fine art. Uh, but you know, if you're illustrating Spider-Man uh, as I did, or some other kind of work for higher character, then it's definitely illustration, but you try to infuse it with as much of your own personal uh, input as possible. 
Yeah, you mentioned uh, the influence of Arthur Rack, and uh, I also see a lot of uh, Czechoslovakian artist Alphonse Mucha in your yes. work. Yes. Um, and Brian Froud and Ruth Sanderson are some of the contemporary artists right. I also see in your work. And I was wondering, uh, what artists today do you look to? Oh, well, I'm always looking at my, I, when I moved to New York City, I shared an apartment with Michael Kaluta mm -hmm. uh, and for 12 years. And uh, uh, he's a fabulous artist, sometimes a little crazy, but good, good, good crazy. And um, uh, all the stories you could tell, <laughs> but uh, any particular modern artist, uh, uh, Jean ba Baptiste Monge is really yeah. fun, makes me excited. It's usually, it's just the art that makes my fingers itch and makes me want to run to the drawing board and start drawing. That's, mm -hmm. that's what I like. And there's uh, quite a few of them. I like, you know, Ruth's and Brian's work, Alan Lee. Uh, I've known them, both Alan and Brian for since 1982, maybe. Yeah, and uh, did you go to school for illustration or is it something that you... <laughs> <laughs> Well, I thought I was. <laughs> I went into commercial art, uh, but the school I went to, it was, Commercial art for them was teaching you how to do hand paste up and design ads. Uh, and the thought of four years of, of hand paste up was not something I was going to stay sane doing. So I switched into uh, fine art, painting and printmaking, uh -huh. uh, specializing in printmaking, lithography and that kind of thing. Uh, and it was, you know, trying to be as subversive as possible. Again, I couldn't use narrative but I, I use a lot of uh, my love of uh, George Harriman's uh, crazy cat cartoons yeah. with strange landscapes and things <laughs> happening. Yeah, and uh, what was your first illustration job? Ooh. <laughs> Something in the, <laughs> early, in the, in the 70s, uh, so, you know, local stuff. Uh, when, once I moved to New York City, which had been 1976, uh, Actually, almost my first job there was Kaluta knew a lot of other artists, comic artists, and one of them, Walt Simonson, was hired to do illustrations for Abrams Books, which was a big art house publisher. But they were doing an edition of The Hobbit using illustrations by the Rankin and Bass animation that came mm -hmm. out at that time. But the, that didn't cover all the text, so they were getting artists to draw in that style. And they had six or seven of us doing it. We were not allowed to sign the pictures. Uh, <laughs> but if you ever see that big uh, book of the Hobbit that's based on the Rankin and Bass, all the paintings of the barrels, that's mine. <laughs> that's yeah, so I mentioned your work at Heavy Metal Magazine. So a number of great illustrators uh, worked there in the 70s, Jean Mobius Rod. Uh, Howard Chaikin, Bill Stout, uh, Mike Kaluta, Richard Corbin, Alex Nino, Jim Burns, yeah. Joe Jesco. I mean, just, you know, a stellar cast. So uh, what was it like working with, with those great artists? I, well, you didn't really work with the artists. You worked with the editor uh -huh. who was just picking the art. I did a lot, of, a number of pieces for them until finally the editor took me aside and went, Charles, your work is just too nice for us. <laughs> they wanted it a little more vicious, a little more misogynist, you know, that kind of thing. And that was not something I was interested in doing. So 
Yeah. Uh, luckily for me, Epic Illustrated came along and uh, I started doing work for Archie Goodwin over at Marvel. Yeah, I, uh, I found a self-portrait you did for either National ah, Lampoon or yeah. Heavy Metal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Were you thinking of Rockwell's triple self-portrait when you did that? or No, I was just trying to make some money to eat. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, you know, if it was my choice, I would never have done the science fiction, but they wanted <laughs> some science fiction, so I, I tried to draw spaceships. I'm really bad at spaceships. So you brought up uh, Epic Illustrated. So uh, in 1981, you wrote and illustrated a story uh, titled The Children of the Stars that was published in uh, Epic Illustrated number eight, which was an adult fantasy comic book uh, mm -hmm. that Marvel published. And in 1987, Dark Horse Comics reprinted that story and others in a series titled uh, The Book of Night. Uh, so what was the response to the release of the Children of the Stars in 1981? Uh, a muted silence. <laughs> uh, it wasn't, again, it didn't, it didn't have, the women's legs weren't long enough and the breasts weren't big enough and there weren't enough people being chopped up. I was always more for lyrical and whimsical and, uh, and poetic and that was not quite the audience that usually read uh, Epic Illustrated or Heavy Metal. So mm -hmm. it took a long time to find uh, my audience, shall I say. And mm -hmm. uh, segueing from that into superheroes, which was a very odd thing for me. I loved reading Spider-Man and Fantastic Four and all those things growing up, but I never thought I would draw them. And uh, being asked to do uh, I think the first story I did for Marvel proper was a Doctor Strange story. And then later on, I sort of got uh, connected to Spider-Man, which was, you know, fine because I grew up thinking, uh, reading Spider-Man, loving it. I did gymnastics in high school, thinking about Spider-Man. <laughs> then you're living in New York City and there's all this cool architecture way up there in the, in the tops of the buildings. And you're like, oh, if you could just swing up there and look at it, it would be great. So I, I, when I was drawing Spider-Man, I let all that love come out. Yeah, so, so uh, bringing up Spider-Man, um, so you painted the cover of the debut issue of the Web of Spider-Man series in yeah. uh, 85. And uh, I think I told you before, but that was one of my favorite comic books growing up. And I, I still have several issues. In fact, uh, I have uh, this cover here. <laughs> I guess. Signed yeah. Vess, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, then in 1990, you wrote and illustrated a graphic novel, Spider-Man Spirits of the Earth, in which Peter Parker travels to Scotland and encounters fairies and ghosts and an evil cult. And I was wondering, uh, that seems more of your style with the, with the fairies yes. and things. And yeah. was, was that your idea or was that Marvel's yeah, idea? Definitely my idea. <laughs> I just, I woke up one morning with the idea in my head and I wrote it down and submitted it. And, uh, and it, they agreed to do it, which surprised me a whole lot. Uh, and it was, I got to write off several trips to Scotland um, <laughs> because of that. And just, I, I love that landscape and I didn't want to be drawing 10 million windows in New York City for, you know, a year, the year, year and a half I worked on the books. So I would much rather draw a landscape. And it, uh, it did pretty well, it sold well. And the royalties from that excuse me, it's Marvel, the incentives from that uh, helped, uh, helped us buy a house, our first house. Oh, that's so, great. Yay, Spider-Man. 
yeah, I mentioned you have a long working relationship with fantasy author Neil Gaiman. Uh, so I was wondering, when did you first meet and how did you get started working together? <laughs> uh, it's a little complicated. There used to be a magazine called Amazing Heroes. Mm -hmm. And they came up with the idea of doing a swimsuit issue every summer, <laughs> wherein they asked all the artists that drew comics to do skimpily clad women, superheroes, mutants, whatever. And it sold really well for them. And they asked me and I went, ha, <laughs> here, what will I come up with? So I did this, I was doing Warriors 3, the story, the Asgardian Warriors 3 at the time. But I love um, a British, uh, actually a Virginian writer, uh, James Branch Cappell. And he has this hilarious story where uh, Jurgen, his hero has been told by his mother to go out into the world and make a fine figure of himself. And he's dense enough to think that he's supposed to actually sculpt a figure of himself. So every time he gets caught into a pile of mud, he's always sculpting a fine figure of himself. So I used that idea with Volstag and the Warriors Three and said, thank you to James Branch Cabell. And the editors of the magazine thought that I was talking about an older illustrator. And that's what they said underneath of it. And then in the next issue, there was a letter from Mr. <laughs> Neil Gaiman of England saying, excuse me, but James Branch Cabell had explained who he was uh, and who was quite famous at the time. And he was one of the first writers taken before the Supreme Court for obscenity. Oh, wow. And the obscenity is, I mean, you read it now and you're like, he was, it's hard to imagine that you'd think it was obscene. Mm -hmm. But um, so when we met at San Diego Comic-Con in one of the aisles in whenever that was, 88 or 89, and it was before Neil was Neil, so he could stand in the aisle and no one would bother him. <laughs> we just started talking immediately about James Branch Cabell. And um, then he asked me if I wanted to draw an issue of Sandman. The rest is history, I suppose. So in 1991, you worked on Sandman number 19, uh, based yeah. on Shakespeare's play Midsummer Night's Dream. And that book won the World Fantasy Award for Best Short Story that year. Uh, the only comic book to ever win that award. And I understand that after that, there was a little bit of controversy perhaps <laughs> where they decided that comic books didn't belong in that category, that they belonged in a, in a category by itself. Well, they that? just didn't want comics in there. Uh, they just changed the rules. They didn't say you can't have a comic. They said a short story is this many words. And it sort of guaranteed that comics were going to be in that. The evening that we won that award uh, was the evening that Neil came back from another party and found me. And we walked out into the desert and talked about Stardust for the very first time, so, which was a big project. So you were named Best Artist at the World Fantasy Awards three times. Other artists who've won the award include uh, Tim Hildebrand, Jeff Jones, Michael Whalen, Don Mates, Edward Gorey, uh, Greg Manchester, and uh, Frank Rosetta, and others. Yeah. Uh, and I believe Michael Whalen and Sean Tan are the only other artists to win three times. Um, uh, I don't know. I never counted. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So I wondered, uh, do major awards like this inspire you, or are you always just thinking? Well, they're fun. The projects. You're fine. You, you look up on your mantle and uh, see these awards and they're really, uh, uh, the World Fantasy Awards are particularly ugly, but wonderful in a sort of bizarre manner. 
and you put hats on them and do all these things. It uh, was sculpted by Gann Wilson mm -hmm. in a portrait of H.P. Lovecraft in the style of an Easter Island statue. <laughs> so they're, they're quite uh, unique. They know they don't do them anymore. They have a different, they've redesigned the statue. Mm -hmm. But uh, all of those awards, it's, it really, uh, they're, they're fun to win. I can't, it, but it doesn't, uh, once you get back to your drawing board, it's, it's still you and the drawing board and the blank sheet of paper that you have the war with. Yeah, and so you mentioned uh, working on Stardust uh, with Neil. So that's a modern fairy tale set in England in the early 1800s. Uh, the book won several awards, and uh, in 2007, it was made into a feature film with Robert De Niro, Michelle Pfeiffer, uh, Claire Danes. Uh, so I was wondering, uh, what involvement, if any, did you have with the motion picture? And when you were working on the book, did you expect that Hollywood would want to uh, produce this? Uh, it was optioned several times uh, before it became a movie. At one point, um, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman were going to be the stars. Uh, there was another time when all uh, just various actresses wanted to be stardust and none of it ever happened. The, the only involvement I had with the, the, the book, the movie, was uh, accepting a very large check and cashing it. <laughs> uh, Neil made sure I was, uh, my name was on the screen because he felt like the book would not have happened without my art and without that collaboration. So. Uh, the Hollywood was perfectly willing to completely ignore my contribution, but uh, he insisted on it. So it, it happened and I got to go to the premieres and you know walk the carpets and see all the actors. I even went to the to Pinewood and watched them film some for a weekend. And okay. Got to meet Michelle Pfeiffer when she was in her hag outfit mm -hmm. and she never got out of that. She was always crunched and looking up like this, but apparently, uh, she had taken a number of years off to raise some children. And she'd also been taking art classes and trying to learn how to paint. So we had this lovely conversation about art and what it was like to create things with this strange hag looking up at me. <laughs> it was so surreal, but fun. So uh, what is your process for creating a painting from uh, start to finish? Well, you know, an eraser, a pencil, an eraser, uh, I think the eraser is the most important tool you'll ever have in your life. You should always be able to change your mind. Uh, and I, I have a sturdy piece of paper and I start drawing on it and scribbling. And then I erase a lot and scribble. I yell at the walls. I throw things at the walls, you know, not always, but sometimes. And uh, then you come up with the, the piece that you is sort of based on what was in your mind, but it's usually different. And I, I will outline those pencil drawings with an ink line and then wash over that with color. And in uh, a week or so later, there, there will be a finished piece, if I'm lucky. <laughs> so sometimes the Stardust had 175 paintings in it. Wow. Uh, not all of them full blown. Some of them were small, quite small. Uh, but it still took, that was a year and a half, two years of work. Um, and then in 2006, you worked with George R. R. Martin on uh, his book, A Storm of Swords, in uh -huh. which uh, were included 75 of your illustrations. Um, yeah. I've, I've heard he's a bit eccentric, but a uh, very, very nice guy. And, oh, really uh, fun. Yes. Yeah. So I wondered, what was it like to work with him? I, it, he was very easy. Um, 
He was always willing to help, but he was always on uh, tour. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't track him down. And sometimes you'd be like, you'd do, be doing a drawing and you, you know, you've got, you'd have to read, this was the third book in the series. They're all very large, long books. Uh, and you'd have to read all of those to get some of the character descriptions. And they were drawing, say the hound, the, the guy clanging or whatever. And he's got a scar on his face and you're like, what side of the face does he have the scar on? And George would be on uh, tour and he wouldn't be communicating because he had no official Bible, what they call a Bible. Yeah, book. Sure. Uh, so he's, after a while, went, well, if it's not on the right side, they can flip it, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> but, you know, digitally flip it. Uh, but he, he was really fun. Uh, it was, uh, it's not quite the world I want to live in, uh, but uh, it was an interesting project. Mm -hmm. I spent about four years on the thing. Wow. Um, in 2003, you collaborated with uh, World Fantasy Award-winning author Charles DeLint, who you've worked with a few times. Uh, you worked on uh, A Circle of Cats that year, and then at the 10th Annual Spectrum Awards, uh, you were awarded the Gold Award for Best Book Art. Uh, mm -hmm. so, so how does it feel to be so well-respected among your peers? It, it feels really good. Some, it's for the little kid who grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia, it's like, you know, you don't, you, you sit in your studio and you work and you work and you work and then you go out sometimes and then you're confronted by the fact that people have been following your work and, and being inspired by your work and all that. And it's not something you really ought to be thinking about when you're drawing because you're really drawing for yourself. But uh, it's heartwarming, it's wonderful, and it's uh, uh, thrilling, really. So, do you think you're ever going to retire, or you're just going to keep going? Well, I was just filling out my social security. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm turning seventy in June, <laughs> so. Uh, but no, I can't imagine retiring. I mean, there, I have yeah. lots of ideas stored up that I'd like to draw. I'd like to maybe do a few less books and paint some more for myself. Mm -hmm. uh, but most of these book projects, they seem to be taking longer and longer. The uh, the Earthsea, the book of Earthsea that I illustrated took four years. Uh, and it was in deep collaboration with the writer. And it was really fun to get to know her because she was a wonderful, wonderful writer and wonderful person and very uh, acerbic wit. Yeah, so that was Ursula K. Le Guin. Yes. And uh, it was the 50th anniversary, I think, of the, yes. the first time they were published. Yeah. Yeah. So you've worked with many of the top fantasy authors of our time. Um, so I guess if, if you could travel back in time, uh, what fantasy author from the past would you like to work with? Oh, Dunsany. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's really the one that I can think of. Uh, I love reading. It's really interesting process now to read some of these books, beautiful books that were written in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, and it's, they're written for a different world and you really have to slow your clock down to read them. Because a lot of times they, they use a lot of adjectives. <laughs> a lot of, it's, a, it's not, a, not quick, immediate reads. Uh, and 
sometimes that's good to do instead of, you know, renting a, a downloading a, a 12 part TV series and watching it one day, you know, it's like savor it. So in 2009, I saw your name literally every day. Uh, my daughter became infatuated with uh, your wow. uh, book, Blueberry Girl, that you worked on with Neil Gaiman. And uh, it remains one of my daughter's favorite books. Uh, you know, she's she's, uh, she's uh, 14 now, but she still, uh, still loves your work. Uh, so have you found it to be the case that a certain book that you've worked on resonates uh, with, with people more than others? There are some, yes. Some that have been noticed more. That was just an amazing project because it's, I think it's an 18 line poem that has no protagonist mm -hmm. whatsoever. And it was uh, beautiful and very poetic. And I didn't want to take away from any of that, but it, it's a book and you have to sort of try to put in a protagonist that will move, move the reader through it. And uh, it took, it was a long conceptual birthing of that book. But once it was done, I just, I, I watched people read it in my pencil form, very finished pencil. And uh, women especially would be in tears. So, sure. okay, I'm doing it right, <laughs> you know, so. Uh, and it's really, uh, it's nice to be associated with some books that are, people read over and over and over again. Um, uh, I think your first novel, The Queen of Summer's Twilight, uh, uh -huh. 2019, you have it available to read for free on your website. Uh -huh. uh, why did you decide to allow uh, readers free access uh, to, to the book? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had been- uh, You don't see this often. No, no. Uh, and not that many people still will have read it, but it's there if you want to do it. I will probably self-publish that sometime this year or next, early next year uh, to get it into print. It's a, a book that, just started cascading in my head and it was a long story and and I couldn't stop writing. I, I would come into the studio and say, well, I'll just do a little bit of work. And then two or three hours later, it'd be in a, in a thousand words, I'd be like, oh my God, here I go. But it, it was a story that was, I guess I would call it a gift from whatever it was from and uh, is something I needed to, needed to do. Uh, it was right, I wrote it right after I'd done another book uh, called The Greenwood, that is a combination of, uh, of graphic narrative, illustration, and text. And no editor ever got it. They couldn't understand why you'd want to do that. And I just thought it was a wonderful thing. Uh, and I think, uh, and I was supposed to publish that through a company called Tachyon, really nice, nice publisher, so. We'll see, it'll be sort of a Kickstarter because they can't afford to pay me to do all the drawing, sure. uh, but they will be the um, fulfillment. They will mm -hmm. publish it and ship it and mail it, which is all good because I'm really crappy at yeah. <laughs> shipping and mailing stuff. <laughs> I want to draw. <laughs> you know. Well, uh, when you start the Kickstarter, let us know and uh, okay. we'll, we'll put it on our, on our uh, Facebook page. Um, uh, so the, uh, I guess the last question, I, I wanted to know about the uh, digital art, because uh, I'm working on the show Enchanted, uh, which will be our big fantasy exhibition this summer at the museum. 
And in uh, going through the list of artists, I assume that a lot of the modern artists would be working with digital. When in fact, uh, it was actually very few, most, most work in traditional media. So I wondered if, if you have worked at all with digital and how do you see digital art uh, affecting the future of fantasy illustration? Have we got a couple hours? <laughs> uh, I don't use digital art. I use, um, as, as I get older, my eyesight gets a little more blurry every day. Uh, I usually have agreements with a, a publisher for them to uh, scan in all the artwork and then send it to me. And I can zoom in on a face where I've dropped a bit of paint on it and needs to be gone and I'll just digitally get rid of it. Uh, I work in a, a transparent medium. It's not really watercolor, it's FW colored inks. And you can't, the only way to get rid of a splop of color on a face or a body or a hand is to use something opaque and it always looks so obviously there, it drives me crazy. But in Photoshop, you know, boom, boom, it's done. Uh, I know a lot of artists that work in digital, but every art director I know that talks about it wants digital because they can change it really easily. <laughs> sure. And that's not my job. I don't want to change, you know, yeah. we agree on a picture and I paint that picture. And it's, uh, I don't want to make the background red or yellow or green or orange for them. Mm -hmm. You know, it's what I've done. It's what you get. And also like, um, I remember, in the early 80s working on a Spider-Man story so that I could make the money to fly to London, to go to the Tate Gallery and sit in front of the Lady of Shalott. And, and, and the plus was a, a malaise Ophelia was right on the other side of the door and see the original. And when you see an original, it's like you're having a conversation with the artist, whether they're dead or alive or whatever it is. But you can really, it, that's why they're museums. Is so you can go and see that. And anytime I'm in a show that they have a beautifully printed zebra chrome of a digital piece, I'm not having that conversation. I'm looking <laughs> at the shiny surface. It doesn't work for me. And I'm, and I'm old fashioned <laughs> and I'll die <laughs> and it'll be okay. <laughs> so some people love it. So I let them love it. Well, that's all the time we have for now. Uh, thank you, Charles, for all the great work you've done. For more information, check out Charles' website at greenmanpress.com. That's greenmanpress.com. And our own websites, nrm.org, illustrationhistory.org, and visit the Rockwell Center for American Visual Studies at rockwell-center.org. As always, don't forget to subscribe to be notified for the latest content. This has been a production of the Norman Rockwell Museum. To watch the video of this podcast or to see the images referenced in this episode, please visit nrm.org podcast. New episodes from the Illustrator Studio are released every Monday. For questions or comments, please email us at podcast at nrm.org.